Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, it's so good to see uh, so many new faces, uh, people who have uh, joined us uh, recently. Welcome, welcome, welcome to church. Uh, for all of y'all who brought your mothers, thank you for trusting us. Uh, that this is a safe place for you to bring your parents. It's a real testament of your faith, trust, and belief, and all that good stuff. Uh, Hannah's parents are here. Come on, Matthew and Sarah, I believe, yeah? They are missionaries to Cambodia. Awesome. Welcome. We honor you for the work that you do. We so love having your daughter in this church uh, serving with us, and we tolerate your son-in-law. And so... <laughs> Just kidding. Andrew's a real gift and treasure to the nation, and so all that good stuff. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I, as usual, I have a ton of ground to cover. Um, you know, I thought, uh, what better way to uh, give Joy a Mother's Day present than to uh, let her just... Where is she? Hello? <laughs> She's somewhere. She's running around. I wanted to give her a break from running around today and uh, just to hear me speak. But, yes, I have uh, a message, a word for you today, and I think it's going to be real fun. As usual, we have a lot of ground to cover. Uh, shall we jump right in? Yeah. yeah, you know, uh, but before that, you know, I really recognize that this pulpit, uh, you know, it's a real gift, honor, and privilege uh, to be able to steward it and to share with you God's truth. And you know, uh, one of the things that we endeavor to do here is to dismantle lies and release truth, and uh, to to tear down the lies that uh, we believe and uh, release truth. And so today, you know, I I want to like just release some truth uh, before we start and uh, just just help dismantle a lie or a bad belief or something that uh, you previously thought was right. But uh, it's, it's not right. Uh, it's actually um, uh, really wrong. And uh, so I can have my picture up. Yeah, and so, you know, you cannot stack draw two and draw four cards. You cannot. Do you know that? How many of you play Uno? Yeah? Do you know? You, you can't do that. You cannot. And it's so, it's so fun because, you know, I, I read the comment section and people are commenting, sending DMs to Uno. Like, Uno, you don't even know how to play the game, Uno. <laughs> so, so this is just public service announcement, PSA. No, I thought I would get a bit more response, but clearly you guys don't play Uno and don't know how to have a bit of fun. <laughs> it is true. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is not fake news. You know, it's quite, it's quite... Yeah, 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 yeah. And these days, uh, cannot anyhow spread falsehoods, you know, you know, because of stuff like that. See how relevant I am. Okay, but let's, let's pray before I lose you and you guys leave and never come back. All right, shall we pray together? Lord, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you that this is the day that you have made and we will rejoice and be glad, be glad in it. Lord, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you showered uh, over our lives. Lord, Lord, we thank you for every divine provision of how you've met us here. And God, we rejoice and celebrate the knowledge of you, that you have risen, that you are living, that you speak to us, that you move and that you touch us today. Lord, we can experience you in such a real way. And God, we ask, even as we dive into your word today, Lord, that you will indeed encounter our hearts. Lord, we thank you that your word is not an archaic piece of literature, but your word is living, active, breathing, and it speaks to us today. So God, we ask, even as we open the divine scriptures, that you will encounter us, you'll meet us, that we will meet you, the living word. We thank you for this awesome privilege. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. <clears throat> Yo, I need y'all to be really alive, yo, because Amy is uh, in gush 
and I'm losing a bit of you know, crowd appeal here. Uh, Dropped by 50%, so you guys have to compensate. And uh, as always, you know, you know, uh, a bit of response goes a really long way. A bit of response makes the sermon, yeah. sermon a lot shorter. So, you know, you can shout things like, Amen. Amen. Good stuff. Good sound, stuff. sound doctrine. And so, yeah, that's, that's my, one of my faves. Very sound. If it's unsound, you can shout heresy and our ushers will usher you outside. Okay. I have very big ushers, okay. So, you know, don't play, play. That's why we have the, that one usher. For, for bouncing reasons. <laughs> how many are you good? Yeah. Well, uh, how many of you remember last year we did a seven-week series on justice? How many of you remember that? Yeah, seven weeks of justice. Uh, it's one of my favorite series. You know, I'm not supposed to have favorite ones, but that's one of my favorite ones. And uh, uh, we talked about justice and uh, not just, you know, doing justice, not just uh, doing justice as an event or a campaign or doing the occasional mission trip, but we talked about justice as a lifestyle. That it's not just enough to do justice, but we have to live justly. Do we agree on that? Yes? It's not just a campaign, but justice as a lifestyle. That we endeavor to live justly by meeting the needs of the poor, the marginalized, the people who are oppressed daily through our lifestyle choices. And we do so by not further perpetuating cycles of injustice. The lifestyle, by that I mean what we watch, what we buy, and how we treat other people. And I would just like to recap a couple of concepts that we covered in that series that will really set the backdrop of what I want to jump into this morning. Eugene Cho, former pastor of Quest Church, Seattle, and founder of One Day's Way, just says this, wow, the color did not turn out the way I wanted it to. It's pink. It's, it's so nice, so pretty, and calligraphy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I work really hard on this, you know. This is not... Usually my, my, my slides are like black text in like Helvetica, but today is curly. <laughs> but the, the quote, I love this quote, to do justice means to render to each what each is due. It is based on the image of God in every person, the imago Dei, that grants all people inalienable dignity yeah. and infinite worth. All of you, all of us, all of y'all carry the image of God, every single human being. Ken Weitzman, pastor and founder of the Global Movement, the Justice Conference, has this to say about justice. He says, justice is the single best word, both inside and outside the Bible, for capturing God's purposes for the world and humanity's calling in the world. Justice is, in fact, the broadest, most consistent word the Bible uses to speak about what ought to be. I'd like to suggest to you that just as truth corresponds to what is, justice corresponds to what ought to be, what is to be. And it's with this as the backdrop, backdrop that I'd like to speak to you on the subject today of women and justice. Wow. Women and justice. In my personal opinion, everybody say Andre's opinion. opinion. Thank you. You guys have practiced this a bunch of times. Yeah. In my opinion, I think that there has been no singular group of people that have been as historically oppressed as women. I know that's a really strong statement because... We think about the Jews, we think about the African-Americans, we think about the Rohingyas, uh, refugee crisis. But in my opinion, there has been no singular people group that, uh, that has been as historically oppressed as women. And I don't know whether you're aware that that oppression still lives on today. I'd like to share you some statistics. One in three women worldwide have experienced either intimate partner violence or non-partner sexual violence in their lifetime, worldwide. Women around the world aged 15 to 44 are more at risk from rape and domestic violence than from cancer, car accidents, war, and malaria. In Singapore, women earn a staggering six, 640000 less than their male counterparts over a 40-year career. 
The differential, which includes CPF contributions, was calculated as part of AWARE's ongoing research. Women currently hold 24 or 4.8% of CEO positions at S&P 500 companies. And this one's staggering. Gender bias sex selection can be measured using sex ratio at birth, a comparison of the number of boys born versus the number of girls born in a given period. The biological normal sex ratio at birth can range from 102 to 106 males per 100 females. And with the invention of the sonogram, recent studies uh, indicate that ratios can be as high as 130 boys per 100 girls born. Recent studies indicate that 126 million women and girls were missing in 2010 due to gender bias sex selection, which can include, for example, excess female mortality and prenatal sex selection. These projections estimate that by 2020, more than 142 million women will be missing from the population. Heavy stuff, I know. I'm so sorry. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> we can admit that the landscape for women in the 21st century is a polarized world. It's a polarized world of extremes, to be honest. You know, at one end of the spectrum, women have broken through the glass ceiling to secure posts of leadership, power, and achievement that rival their male counterparts. Women have arrived and in growing numbers are succeeding in the highest echelons of government, business, religion, education, sports, and the entertainment industry. It's a new day for women. Everybody say, amen. By the same time, in the same world, a Chinese man rejoices that he doesn't have to have daughters anymore. And that ability comes with the invention of the sonogram. Dreams may come true where prosperity abounds, but the world today is a sinister, frighteningly unsafe, degrading place for millions of daughters who are powerless to, to stop what is happening to them. Honor killings, sex trafficking, child marriages, female infanticide, and stranded and impoverished widows are not yesterday's news. They are happening at this very moment to a catastrophic number of women. Wildly beyond epidemic levels, it is simply mind-numbing. And imagine, if you can, the reality presented by the following statements that were made by a journalist and a researcher. It says this, it appears that more girls have been killed in the last 50 years precisely because they were girls. That men killed in all the wars of the 20th century. More girls are killed in this routine genocide in any one decade than people were slaughtered in all the genocides of the 20th century. Research indicates that worldwide around 3 million women and girls have been kidnapped or sold into the sex trade, which in effect means that they are the property of another person and in many cases could be killed by their owner with impunity. This is the world that we live in. Put more concretely, far more women and girls are shipped into brothels each year in the earlier, early 21st century than African slaves were shipped into slave plantations each year in the 18th or 19th centuries. Now the question is this. I read through a bunch of steps. I know, really depressing, right? Imagine, you know, I've been reading these stats for the last two weeks, and so, whew, struggling to be happy. But the question is this, you know, the problem is so huge, so seemingly insurmountable, how do we even begin to make a dent in it? And I'd like to draw us back to what I suggested in the Justice series, that though the issue may be huge, though it may be seemingly insurmountable, we can make a decision to choose not to participate, further perpetuate, and make small incremental changes in the way we live life to make a change in the right direction. I believe all change begins on the home front. And for believers, it looks like change in our households and also in our churches. Now, historically, the church has had varied positions 
on gender equality. It will shock you to know that a sizable number of early church fathers and theologians hold predominantly unfavorable views towards women. Now, whenever you interpret scripture, um, you know, you can use different methods, but one of the methods is, it's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. I know, so chim. But uh, it, if, if it's an acronym, it's but. You know, you approach scripture through uh, the Bible, experience, reason, and tradition. So Bible, you know, you read it, you read the plain reading of scripture, and uh, you interpret it through the overall narrative of the Bible, through your own life experience, through proper human reasoning, and through tradition, what early church fathers thought, what has the church historically thought, and what position the church has historically uh, had on that verse. Now, when it comes to gender equality, women empowerment, what we believe is the absolute minority uh, in contrast with church tradition. Early church fathers have held an unfavorable view towards women, and here's a sampling. Some of this might be really offensive, and some of your heroes might be up here, but who, here goes. Clement of Alexandria, Greek father of the church, second century, said this, every woman should be filled with shame by the thought that she is a woman. The consciousness of their own nature must evoke feelings of shame. Tertullian says that women are the devil's gateway. Augustine said this, I don't see what sort of help women was created to provide men with if one excludes procreation. Martin Luther, Protestant Reformation, one of our heroes, he says this, for as the sun is more glorious than the moon, though the moon is, as, is a most glorious body, so woman, though she was a most beautiful work of God, yet she did not equal the glory of the male creature. Next slide. Origen says this, men should not sit and listen to a woman even if she says admirable things or even saintly things. That is of little consequence since it came from the mouth of a woman. John Calvin, French theologian, he says this, on the first post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to women rather than to men. We are all familiar with the story, yes? Jesus appeared first to women. He says this, I consider this was done by way of reproach, punishment, because they, the men, had been so tardy and sluggish to believe. And indeed, they des deserve not only to have women for their teachers, but even oxen and asses. Yet it pleased the Lord by means of those weak, contemptible vessels to give display of his power. Early church fathers. An honorable mention, I put up Confucius just for fun, and Confucius said this, 100 women are not worth a single testicle. That's what Confucius said. Confucius said, 100 women are not worth a single testicle. Staggering, right? Staggering. And, you know, I, I'm reading this and, and I'm, I'm in such a place of conflict, right? Because most, most of the men I read earlier, you know, I've quoted in my other sermons, Augustine, Origen, Tertullian, and these guys are like early church fathers, theological heavyweights. And, um, and what I'm about to say, you know, it sounds pompous, arrogant, uh, but I do think they, that they are wrong on the position. I do think they are categorically wrong in the position. And the thought is this, that you can be right on many things, but so, so wrong on others. Jesus is perfect theology. No single man on planet Earth or man that has ever lived has a complete monopoly on theology. You can be right on so many things, but yet be so, so wrong on others. Today, as we celebrate mothers, mothers-to-be, aspiring mothers, spiritual mothers, adoptive mothers, but also all women and all girls, invitation to you as well. I'd like to present a biblical argument for empowering women. 
Today, my sermon title is this, Half the Sky, Jesus, Women, and the Church. Half the Sky, Jesus, Women, and the Church. Now you might be wondering, why, where does this half the sky come from? It comes from a Chinese proverb or Chinese quote that's been to Mao Zedong. And wow, you've seen everything Mao Zedong quoted in church. He says this, For those of you that are wondering what just happened, Andre is basically Chinese illiterate, and so miracles happen. Hey, I practiced like 50 times again. I have to do this. <laughs> Which translates to women hold up half the sky. Now, Matsutong may be many things, but you know, apparently he's a champion for women and he's a self-professed feminist. But here's this. The notion that women hold up half the sky can be traced back a whole lot earlier than the 20th century in Mao Zedong. It can be found on the opening pages of the Bible, where God calls both men and women to hold up the sky together by becoming compassionate, proactive leaders who look after things in this world for Him. God created both His sons and daughters to rule with justice and mercy and to fight the battles necessary to subdue and push back the forces of evil that threatened us on all sides. And here's what I believe. I believe the Church of Jesus Christ should be first in line to champion the empowerment of women and girls throughout the world. I believe the church should be the first to champion the empowerment of women and girls throughout the world. In fact, the community of God's people should be the epicenter of human flourishing, where men and women are encouraged and supported in their efforts to develop and use the gifts God has given them wherever He stations them in the world. The church of Jesus Christ should be a dazzling showpiece of female and male flourishing that the world will take notice. This should be the dazzling statement piece, the epicenter for what it means to flourish, both male and female. Both male and female. I read a criticism recently uh, from a certain pastor from a certain denomination who has a certain name that I will not mention. And, uh, you know, like I said, you know, with church tradition in mind and with you know, a, a bunch more, we, we hold a minority uh, position uh, when it comes to female empowerment. And he says this, this pastor, a great litmus test about a church is to see if they would allow women to be pastors. Because if they do, they obviously do not care about scripture and are only interested in following the way of culture and not the way of Christ. Yeah. The truth is today, it is culturally popular, palatable for us to hold a position of female women empowerment. It is. It is culturally popular really acceptable. With the hashtag MeToo movement on the rise, criticism of Donald Trump's treatment of women, and number of female world leaders on the rise, it sits very well in our current cultural climate. But I'd like to suggest to you today, through my teaching, that female empowerment, gender equality, did not originate from the feminist movement. It originates from scripture, the very heart of God. And you know, I know this is a big topic, and so, you know, with stuff like that, you know, it's best to put out some disclaimers. So, you know, they, where, where, <laughs> you know what kind of trajectory this is going when I have to make disclaimers, just in case. You know, like the Spider-Man trailer, he had to give her. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll make some disclaimers, okay? I am a man, if that wasn't obvious. And so, <laughs> I am a man. 
as you can see. So at best, thank you, thank you, thank you. Appreciate you, yes. I'm a man. So at best, at best, absolute best, I represent half the picture. I'm still imperfect as a person, but also imperfect in my understanding of theology. So if I say something that sounds off or offensive, I do apologize, but I have, in my honest opinion, done my absolute best to make sure I made all considerations as it pertains to scripture and also cultural sensitivities. But if I do say anything that offends you, I apologize uh, pre-meditatively. Three, you know, I'm going against thousands of years of church leaders and and some of the most amazing intellectuals and men of God, and I do so with great fear and trepidation, but also with utmost conviction. Four, uh, I'm still a work in progress. I was predominantly uh, exposed to a really chauvinistic environment, and I have been accused of being a male chauvinistic pony uh, many times in my life. And so, uh, you know, I'm still a work in progress. Um, All that to say, I'm not perfect in the way I treat women. I'm not perfect, but I'm committed to becoming better. Point five, last one. The subject is way too complex and robust for me to cover in one message. So I'm going to do two messages on this. But still, there will inevitably be loose ends. And so if you still have questions after this, come to the front, talk to me, send us an email, and Matthew and Janice will get back to you. Okay? (laughs) Share the work. Some questions that come up, that will normally come up as we explore these topics are, does equality mean that roles are no longer valid, i.e. husbands being the head of the households, etc.? If you have questions on that, I do encourage you to attend our PMC MFL PFL. So whatever is relevant to you. Okay? Does, it means that girl, does it mean girls should go and serve compulsory NS? Questions like this you know, that I can anticipate coming up. Does equality negate chivalry, i.e. men no longer have to open doors anymore and can treat women like men? Questions like that, what about head coverings? Why don't we have head coverings? And a a question that really comes up often is, is feminism even biblical? Is feminism biblical? Now, I don't know whether you can agree with me, but feminism today has both positive and negative connotations, do they? Yeah? No, you have the positives like voting rights, the Me Too movement, better wage policies. I read recently that the marital rape immunity was recently repealed. But there are also negatives like pro-choice, uh, I'm not going to shave my armpits anymore and you have to call me beautiful. Like, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> if you don't, I'm so sorry, but I'm just coming from the assu- assumption. But, shucks, did I lose you already? <laughs> and also, you know, a blatant disregard of our unique gender identity. Uh, her name is Shulamith Firestone. She wrote in this book, A Case for the Feminist Re- Revolution. She wrote, the end goal of feminist revolution must be unlike that of the first feminist movement, not just the elimination of male privilege, but of the sexual distinction itself. Genital differences between human beings would no longer matter culturally. That means you're all same. And uh, there, are, there are, of course, uh, good, positive aspects of the movement, there are also, but there are also, admittedly so, negative, extreme negatives. On the flip side, the opposite of feminism, most would agree, would be patriarchy which is defined as a society controlled by men in which they use their power to their own advantage. One extreme to the other extreme. Let's say this extreme is like, you know, no more men and women, don't shave. And this side is like dictator, like, you know, male privilege, using my power to oppress women. Women have no rights. Males holding all the key leadership positions, the extremes. I'd like to suggest to us that there must be a middle that we can exist in. 
there must be a middle. You know, where we take the good parts of the feminist movement, we hold on to aspects of patriarchy that is positive, that empowers women, and we live in the middle. But here's my point. Equality does not have to be at the expense of valuing our diversity in identity, responsibility, and to some degree, function. Equality does not have to be at the expense of our diversity in identity, responsibility, and to some degree, function. And to better understand how we live in this polarizing world, to better understand how we navigate that tension, if you will, to better understand how we live in that middle, I'd like to turn us to Scripture. And as always, Scripture makes the sermon. Thank you for your... Better. No, no, no. Makes the sermon the sermon. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1. Familiar passage of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1. I should just pick one color scheme, but yeah, I'm so sorry. Can we have it in the middle? Would it help? No? Okay. Okay. I'll just listen to opinion then. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, we start in verse 36. It says this, Then God said, let us make men. You know, here's a great way for you to, for, to encourage you to bring your own Bibles to church. So we're just going to make this like a, a tougher experience so everyone bring their own Bible to church. Whoa, they became tougher. <laughs> okay. Yay, black and white, yes. Okay. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now the word man there, some would think it's the male man, but uh, scholars would say that that word man is better translated mankind. Let us make mankind in our image. Next slide. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. Now, I know God is our father, and I'm not trying to create another heresy. You agree on that, yes? I know God is our father. But in the plain reading of scripture, we see that the image of God is neither male, male nor female. It's not binary. It is both. This says something to us about humanity as well, that the image of God is male and female. That means that no individual, no single gender, fully bears the image of God. Inasmuch as any of us bears the imago Dei, it is in peaceful and loving relationship with each other, male and female together. In churches everywhere, we cry out for the fullness of God to be revealed. Yet in most places, half of the image of God stays oppressed, disempowered, and disregarded. We'll look at a couple more passages of scriptures in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2. I think you can put the pink one up. It's okay. I'll just read to them and you guys can experience my soothing voice. Okay, I'll, I'll read, okay? I'll read. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree... Of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper. Okay? Remember that word, comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from him, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Let's look at the last passage in Genesis chapter 3. Lots of Bible, but good for you, like vitamins. 
verse 14. It says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. He shall rule over you. Now, we all know that um, we read in Genesis chapter 1 that God created male and female, yes? God created male and female in his image and he gave both men and women the charge to take care of Eden, to take care of the world that he planted them in. And you know, in Genesis chapter 3, you read that after the fall, this was the curse that was placed upon the woman. In verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And so we see a direct causation that right after the fall, women were subjected to man's authority and rulership. But I'd like to take us back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, with the word helper. Helper. I will make you, I will make him, man, a helper comparable to him. Now, when I say the word helper, what kind of imagery comes up to your head? Helper. For most men, you know, we think helper equates to a woman wearing an apron with a spatula in one hand and bedroom slippers on the other. I'm here to help you. I'm here to play a support role. No man is nodding their head now because, you know, if they say it, they will die. They will be struck down. Not by the Lord. But, but when you think helper, you, the, the imagery that typically comes out in the head is a supportive role. Like, I stand behind you in my pastoral case. Like, I pastor, Amy bakes the casserole and, you know, holds a prayer meeting and stuff like that. You know, it's, you're a supporting role. You're, you're helping me. You're assisting me. But you'll do us uh, a bunch of favors to uh, read... Uh, the Bible in its original script, and the word helper is actually the Hebrew word Azar. Everybody say Azar. 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 What is Azar? The word Azar. I'm so sorry. I'm too much coffee. The word Azar. Okay, we're going to geek out on you for a moment. The word Azar is, is used 21 times in the Old Testament. Twice it is used in the context of the first woman, and so the Bible accounts for two times the word Azar is used. This word helper, and it was used. 21 times, and two times it was used to refer to women. But a staggering 16 times, Aza was used in reference to God as a helper. Think God is my help. God is my Aza. I lift my eyes to the earth. Where does my Aza come from? God. Without exception, this biblical text are talking about a vital, powerful kind of help. Yet when Aza is applied to the first woman, its meaning is usually diminished to fit with traditional and cultural views of women. We think apron, spatula in one hand and home slippers in another. Aza, if you look at the concordance and uh, study different commentaries, it would translate to mean strong, courageous, rescuer, warrior. Don't think apron, spatula. Think like armor, sword, and shield. Aza. Women wasn't ever designed to play the second fiddle, the support role figure. You were designed, fashioned to be strong, courageous, a rescuer, a warrior. That's good news. You know, as I was preparing my sermon in Starbucks, you know, this is a side story, and I was just writing my sermon, and the radio was playing, and uh, a really old song comes on, you know, as I'm, I was... Uh, Typing and uh, it was a Britney Spears song. It goes like, uh, 
don't know how to live without your love. I was born to make you happy. Then I was like typing this whole sermon about female empowerment and this song comes on and I was like, how poignant. Man, what kind of cultural climate do we live in? And it's like, Britney, you're liberated, you're set free. You don't have to live for a man. But anyway, if I could preach the gospel. But we know what was lost in the fall and, and restored uh, through the cross. In the mercy of God, our divine purpose was redeemed through the cross. Why do we still think that woman's divine role as Asa was not restored through Jesus? In the mercy of God, we've restored our divine purpose. But why do we still live as though God's divine mandate to women, Asa, to be a rescuer, a warrior, strong, courageous, was not restored through the cross? I put it to you that it was. And Jesus foreshadows it through his interactions with women in the Gospels. To help us better understand again, we need to read the Bible in its cultural context and to really understand the plight of women in that day. Let's have that next slide up. And this was a first century Jewish woman. She had no public life. Her primary responsibilities were confined entirely within the private family sphere. She had no legal rights. Women were not allowed to testify in court. In effect, this categorized them with the Gentiles, minors, deaf, mutes, and undesirables who were also denied that privilege. They were Torah illiterate. Rabbi Eliezer, a first century teacher, is noted for saying, rather should the word of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. Women weren't allowed to be even earshot of the rabbi's teachings. Rabbis would uh, really you know, make it a point to not interact with any women. They were all Torah illiterate. And they lived in a, a largely patriarchal society. The daily prayers of Jewish men included, praise be to God that I was not created a woman. That was a, a Jewish daily prayer. Women generally married young, and a woman was almost always under the protection and authority of a man, her father, her husband, or a male relative of her husband if she was a widow. This left women in a very vulnerable position within Judaism, and they had little access to property or inheritance except through a male relative. A man could legally divorce a woman for almost any reason. A woman, however, could not divorce her husband. It was written in the law that she could be divorced for literally anything, from burning dinner, a term called halal, to adultery, shamai. How many of you have burned dinner before? Wow. In a culture in which women did not survive unless they were linked to a patriarchal household, it was disastrous to be divorced. At a temple, women were restricted to the outer courts. In synagogues, they were separated from the men and not permitted to read aloud, not permitted to speak in synagogue. They were not allowed to bear witness in a religious court. And, to think, and think about it. In that day, one of the high points, one of the greatest acts, spiritual acts of devotion, was reserved and restricted for one gender, circumcision. That there was a limitation for how women could express their devotion to God. They couldn't read aloud. They couldn't fully express their devotion to God. But Jesus defies these expectations. And we see this all throughout the Gospels in his interactions with women. And we'll read one of these interactions and I'll take, you, take this plane to a landing real soon, I promise. Let's look at John chapter 4. I also, you know, have all these things that I, 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 I listed down in mind as we read the scripture. You know, we've read the scripture a bunch of times, but it helps us to understand the cultural context that women in that day literally had no rights. They couldn't divorce the men. They were Torah illiterate. And this sheds a new light in the Bible to read it. In John chapter 4, it says this, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now, it, it does us to know a bit more historical context. I know this is like a seminary class, but hey, you know, you're all smart people. Jews in that day would, as they traveled from town to town, on purpose avoid the town of Samaria. They saw Samaritans to be unclean, and Jews were to avoid Samaria at all costs for reasons of purification. Samaritans were viewed as like mongrel Druze. They were contaminated in blood and religion because they intermarried and uh, opened the doors to pagan gods. And Jews would literally do anything to avoid dealings with Samaritans. And so this was a shocking interaction that Jesus, a Jew, Jesus, a religious leader, Jesus, a rabbi, would have dealings with a Samaritan woman. Strike one. Let's look at the next slide. It says this further. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, back to context. She was a Samaritan. Jews hated Samaritans. She was a woman. She was already a second-class citizen. And now the Bible notes that she has had five husbands, and the one that she's living with is not even her own. You know, uh, most people, some people, when they interpret this text, they'll say that this woman is probably a serial idolater, a serial adulterer. You know, but um, most uh, scholars will also uh, come to a different conclusion that you know, perhaps this woman was a victim of uh, callous men who divorced her a bunch of times or untimely death, and the man that she was living with uh, would be a caretaker, would be, uh, she might be a maidservant, I, I, we don't know for sure. But we could say that she probably experienced tremendous pain in her life and was likely ostracized and thought of a lesser person by her entire community. Strike three. She was thought lesser in her gender, her nationality, but also her morality. And let's look at the next slide. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now this is a staggering interaction. This woman who was thought of lesser in terms of her gender, her nationality, and her morality. Jesus entrusts her with what we believe to be the premier revelation of worship. This verse that is quoted in all our church meetings was given to a woman who was lesser, who was thought lesser by all people. Elaine Stalky, a writer, says this, that the gospel gives us a glimpse of how Jesus cuts open cultural norms, hierarchies, stereotypes, and the low status of women and injects the reality of equal significance in God. In the gospels, we see not just God's heart for women, but his posture toward them in a society that demeaned and disregarded them. Here's my point. To be like Jesus is to place value on people even when one's culture doesn't. 
a New Testament scholar said that the most striking thing about the role of women in the life of, and teaching of Jesus is the simple fact that they are there. There are tons more stories in the Bible about Jesus' interactions with women. Mary and Martha, the women with the alabaster jar, the woman caught in adultery, the appearance of the woman after the resurrection, and a bunch more in the Old Testament. But more than anything, what says to us about God's value for women is the beautiful truth that the Messiah came to earth through a woman. Think about it. Nine months, the first nine months of Jesus' incarnate life on earth, he spent in the womb of a woman. He spent in the womb of a woman. He would be nursed and nurtured by that woman, um, his mother, whom he deeply loved. And one of the last things that Jesus said as he hung on the cross was to his mother, woman, behold your son, said to John, and John, behold your mother. How many of you participated in our poll on Instagram or responded to those questions live group? Uh, you know, uh, yesterday uh, or two days ago, we did a poll on Insta, Insta stories and uh, we uh, pushed out a bunch of questions to our life group leaders, and uh, we did a you know market research on uh, what uh, the women and the ladies in our church thought about uh, Christianity when it regards to female empowerment. But also a, a couple of uh, other questions were like, what is the best thing about being a woman uh, on planet Earth today, and uh, you know how can men better communicate and express our value to women? How many of you would like to know the results to that poll? You know, it's like kind of cheat code, right? But you know, as I said, we were doing this. Uh, this, uh, this talk over two weeks. And so I'll be covering some base stuff here and we'll also explore some of the answers to those questions in the coming weeks. But I would like to uh, talk about uh, one of those responses. Admittedly so, okay, we have to agree. After reading the stats, after hearing uh, about you know, all the, the different things that are going on on earth and also, um, you know, if you're a woman, you know that it is tough to be a woman on earth today even though we have made so much advances in uh, women's rights in different fields and arenas, but there are still stereotypes that you have to overcome. I would never know. But there, uh, but there are still stereotypes that you would have to overcome, stuff that you have to battle, objectification. Some of you have been abused, oppression, suppression. And so, you know, one of the questions we ask is this, you know, what is the best thing about being a woman? Despite the pushback despite the things that you have to face in life. What is the best thing about being a woman? What is good, beautiful about being a woman today? And here are some of the responses we got. Lots more fashion options. I mean, that's a really, really relevant point, but lots of fashion options. The innate ability to feel and empathize, not needing to serve NS. That's a good one. An intuitive comprehension of what it means to be the bride of Christ. Beautiful. Beautiful. And I'll, I'll admit that that reality is still something I'm struggling to grapple with, what it means to be a bride of Christ as, as a male person. And the last one, and this, you know, would account for 90% of responses, was the privilege of being a mother, the privilege of being a mom. While women came out of man's sight, all men will come out of women. <laughs> Profound. It's true, right? While women came out of man's sight, all men will come out from women. Thank you, man. Some people have to go to seminary for this. But anyway, I, you know, Susan to your mama, how, you know, and, and literally, right, on a biological standpoint, there will be no men if there weren't any women, right? But, you know, there, I will also 
you know, take it a, a step further to say that there won't be men of God without godly mothers, godly women. And here's, we read some quotes, you know, from great men. Abraham Lincoln says this, all that I am hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. Charles Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers, says this, I cannot tell you how much I owe to the solemn words of my good mother. She was the starting point of all the greatness and goodness any of us, by the grace of God, have ever enjoyed. John Wesley says this, I learned more about Christianity from my mother than from all the theologians in England. Man, imagine if a child said that to you. Wow, that's, that's, that's amazing. See, here's the thing. As a man, I will never be able to comprehend the joy of motherhood. But also, I would never be able to comprehend the pain, the suffering, the anguish, and to be honest, grief that mothers go through. Some on a daily basis. But here's Andre's opinion. Everybody say Andre's opinion. Since I've embarked on this journey, I've asked this question. You know, as I study all these stats and, and read about all uh, the hellish situations that women are going through on earth today, I ask myself the question, why has women been so oppressed historically? Why, why women? Why women? And in my honest opinion, it comes back to Genesis chapter 3. We read this in Genesis chapter 3. God says to the devil, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Most translators would suggest a better translation. It says that he will crush your head, but you shall only bruise his heel. Did you know that the first promise given to mankind after the fall was specific to woman and motherhood? That your seed shall crush the head of Satan. Your seed shall crush the head of Satan. At the crucifixion, it was a man who betrayed Jesus. Male soldiers who arrested him. It was Caiaphas, the high priest, scribes and elders who accused him. It was Pilate, the governor, and Herod, the king, who judged him. It was Roman soldiers who beat him while Roman centurion ordered for him to be nailed to the cross. All men. It was a male prisoner who cursed him. It was male soldiers who gambled for his garment. It was male guards who entombed him and male disciples who denied him. At the resurrection, it was a woman who poured expensive perfume on him to prepare him for burial. It was Pilate's wife who had a dream and tried to convince her husband to release him. It was Mary, his mother, Mary, the son of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene who stayed with him through the dark night of his soul. It was two women who were at Jesus' funeral. It was two women who returned to the tomb on the third day and witnessed his resurrection. It was women who first witnessed of the resurrection to 11 male disciples, and out of 11, only two went to check it out. It was women who stayed faithful. It was women who first believed in the resurrection. It was women whom Jesus entrusted, the greatest revelation of the resurrection and the great revelation of worship. In the gospels, we see the deep deepest revelations he entrusts to women. Why? Because women matter, because women are valued, because women play a vital role in seeing the kingdom of God come to earth. Happy Mother's Day. As I close today, I would like to read uh, this piece of writing that I found online. Uh, that's so beautiful, but it's pretty lengthy, but no, it's really powerful, and we're going to end service shortly after. It's a piece of writing called Motherhood by Christina, Christiana Mas. Christiana Mas. She says this, My willingness to carry life is the revenge, the antidote, the great rebuttal of every murder, every abortion, and every genocide. I sustain humanity deep inside of me, life 
grows. I am death's opposition. I have pushed back the hand of darkness today. I have caused there to be a weakening tremor among the ranks of those set on earth's destruction. Today, a vibration that calls angels to attention echoed throughout time. Our laughter threatened hell today. I dined with the greats of God's army. I made their meals and tied their shoes. Today, I walked with greatness. And when they were tired, I carried them. I have poured myself out for the cause today. It is finally quiet. But life stirs inside of me. Gaining strength, the pulse of life sends a constant reminder to both good and evil that I have yielded myself to heaven and now carry its dream. No angel has ever had such a privilege, nor any man. I am humbled by the honor. I am great with destiny. I birth the freedom fighters. In a great war, I am a leader of the underground resistance. I smile at the disguise of my troop, surrounded by a host of warriors, destiny swirling, invisible yet tangible, and the anointing to alter history. Our footsteps marking land for conquest, we move undetected through the common places. Today, I was the barrier between evil and innocence. I was the gatekeeper watching over the hope of mankind, and no intruder trespass. There is not an hour of day or night where, when I turn from my post, the fierceness of my love is unmatched on earth. And because I smile instead of frown, the world will know the power of grace. Hope has feet, and it will run to the corners of earth, because I stood up against destruction." I am a woman, I am a mother, I am the keeper and sustainer of life here on earth. Heaven stands in honor of my mission. No one else can carry my call. I am the daughter of Eve. Eve has been redeemed. I am the opposition of death. I am a woman. Beautiful words. Happy Mother's Day. That is powerful. I stand in the gap between evil and innocence today. Heaven's armies, I tied their shoes. I fed them their meals. I sat with them today. I carried them when they were tired. What lies in my womb, what lies, what stands and sits, lies and throws up in my household, these are the agents of change, of transformation that will alter the course of history. Mothers, we salute you. 